Welcome to a conversation powered by Connected Learning, where we chat with some of today's leading minds about new learning approaches designed for the demands and opportunities of the digital age. Connected Learning values the new ways many young people today access information, gain expertise, and learn alongside peers and mentors using the internet, social networks, and digital technology. We're excited you're here to join the conversation as we seek to make learning relevant. Hi, this is Lee Rank, Associate Producer for the Connected Learning Alliance. Today, we're talking with Michael Levine about connected learning, specifically his experience with how connected learning relates to the use of technology in education. Hi, Michael. Uh, hi, um, great to be with you. Just to highlight, Michael is the founding director of the Joan Cans Cooney Center, an independent nonprofit organization based at the Sesame Workshop. The center conducts research and builds multi-sector partnerships to scale innovation and investment in promising educational media technologies for children. Michael's also a frequent advisor to the White House, the U.S. Department of Education, Public Broadcasting Service, also known as PBS, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Um, so to jump right into some questions, there seems to be a consistent thread of conversation, especially among educators, that our education paradigm needs an update for the 21st century. Um, Michael, what are some of the ways we, you think we can make this happen? Sure, it's really good to be talking with you. I actually think that there are three important ways to um, really make more consistent this thread of conversation regarding the importance of connected learning for all of our children and for all of our educators as part of a lifelong learning opportunity. First, I think there's a misalignment that we need to address between parental expectations, educator expectations, and the emerging consensus in the employment community around what dictates or what constitutes um, 21st century learning and 21st century skills. Um, these disagreements among parents, which you see documented in um, you know, public surveys such as those that take place by Public Agenda or through Frameworks Institute or through Phi Delta Kappen are very important to address. Parents still are advantaging or still really pining for basic skills. They understand the importance of technology, but they don't necessarily understand the importance of connected learning or deeper learning or common core or 21st century skills aligned standards. And so we need to do a much better job of explaining what employers and top educators and governors think is important for children and what the public demand is for it. So much more alignment along these lines. And here I think technology actually has a very important opportunity because parents do know that they need a modern environment uh, for their children. They do know that children need to be able to utilize and deploy technology uh, much more uh, deftly than they had to when they were kids. So that's number one, uh, alignment. Number two, we need to um, remove the moat between what's called informal learning, the learning that goes on in libraries and museums and community institutions. That uh, So there's a moat between what's going on where kids are really engaged in relevant, exciting activities often and what's going on in school. We're not investing nearly enough around bridging that moat, and step one there would be to invest a whole lot more in out-of-school time, in the institutions that really are working 
with youth that have less structure, less constraints, but I think much more opportunity. Boys and Girls Clubs, um, technology centers, um, museums and libraries, that sort of thing. Um, number three, we really have to see technology, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, Lee, as a real opportunity, but also a challenge from an equity standpoint. It's very important for us to look at heavy media consumers who tend to be low-income children um, and make their consumption of the media a bit more balanced and a bit more productive as a real connecting bridge, uh, both in terms of connecting informal and formal learning, as I suggested a moment ago, but also as a bridge for equity. We need to really concentrate on not just access to the technology, but access to participation, to publishing, to identity around the digital media that low-income kids in particular find so compelling. Awesome. Those were some great answers, and you touched on a couple of things I'm going to follow up on later. But um, I also want to ask, lately there's been a lot of emphasis in the K-12 K space to have teachers shift their style from the traditional, quote, you know, sage on the stage to just being more of a learning facilitator. How do you think teachers and even parents can support this learning shift? Sure. Um, I think there's four things that are important to do in supporting this learning shift, which is, you know, quite critical in the, you know, years ahead. First, I think parents and educators both need to find a way to be more mindful. By that, I mean the explosion of information technology in our lives can really be overwhelming. I mean, I am certainly often overwhelmed um, by the work demands and the parenting demands that are associated with new technologies. It's really hard to try and take it all in. So, we need to be more intentional and more mindful about the ways in which technology can really be a facilitator and not a negative disruption. Um, you know, number two, we've got to really invest in professional development and parent engagement around lifelong learning or professional learning. New technologies really have unique affordances to connect us to uh, communities of learning, to connect us to the world's information in a more organized way. Um, there's a change to our own intentional practices as individuals, as educators, as professional leaders that really is important for us to in, in, you know, very much intentionally engage with. Um, third, I think it's really very important for schools to be smaller in general or at least to embrace smaller learning communities. I mean, obviously there's a whole range of public policy initiatives around smaller class size, but particularly for kids who are, you know, very much, you know, immersed in, in, in new technologies or connected learning uh, communities themselves, having a school that is smaller and more intimate and about cultural identity that they can actually, you know, engage with is extremely important. And And fourth, I think, um, parents and teachers in making this um, transition from, you know, being a sage on the stage or, or being the hectoring parent who is going to set, you know, all of the uh, rules and regulations, you know, at home, um, really need to have a new, more modern community themselves in which they can share their expectations, they can share their learnings. There's something about going from sage on the stage to distributed learning, distributed community that, 
connected learning opportunities make really possible. Um, in my field, uh, the change from expert knowledge in parenting, and there's plenty of it, just go to your local bookstore and you'll see dozens and dozens of books with conflicting parenting advice from so-called experts. The shift from there to the local, you know, um, advice that you're getting from friends and family on the web through Facebook, through Twitter, through, you know, Pinterest and, and the like is really compelling right now. So there is a way of supporting a community of knowledge and a community of sharing that I think everybody needs to study who wants to, you know, be a parent leader or to be a new facilitative teacher. Um, I want to follow up on your, because you mentioned um, technology is hard to integrate and there are some good and bad, um, you know, versions of it. And you actually discussed this in depth in your speech at the forum um, on it called Advanced Advancing Learning in the Digital Age back in March. And you said we shouldn't ban technology completely in the classroom, but rather that there needs to be a bad or a balance between the good and bad versions of it. Um, can you elaborate a little more on this, these ideas? Sure, glad to. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is that <clears throat> banning anything of educational value is a really bad idea. <clears throat> we have we have seen the limits and the dangers associated with banning um, uh, banning educational materials or things that were controversial in the past. Um, but I do think that especially for young children, we do need to begin to set new norms of behavior for, you know, using digital technologies beginning at an early age. Now, you know, I have talked a bunch about my concerns as um, an expert on early childhood development with um, too much consumption of, of, of digital media. I do have a concern about that. Um, but the concern isn't really so much about the number of hours. It's more about the intentionality. It's more about discerning what is, you know, useful, uh, what is age appropriate, what is uh, tied to the developmental needs of that particular child, and you know, also to giving kids who don't have access to so many books, but and other literacy materials or a powerful vocabulary, giving kids an equity boost through the access of low, you know, low cost or no cost, you know, digital technology. So I think it's very important for us to have a conversation about what's normal and get parents and teachers to work with children around digital literacy skills right from the start. Um, here at Sesame Workshop, we like to talk about some of the characters that are associated with Sesame. So um, I'll give you an illustration of what I'm talking about now. Um, there is a little bit of um, a pyramid, I would say, of particularly for young children, um, useful technology and useful media experiences. Um, so Cookie Monster knows that um, uh, cookies are a sometimes food, not an anytime food now. So he is a little bit upset about this. But <laughs> um, using that as a metaphor, um, there are, you know, plenty of cookies out there. There are plenty of empty calories. There are plenty of things that are just entertaining and fun or, you know, just wholly about um, having a treat uh, in the digital media uh, side of things for young children. And of course, kids should, you know, and parents should relax about um, there being some of that kind of consumption. But there's a whole bunch of other things that are available to young children, um, you know, 
uh, educational games and <clears throat> videos, um, uh, Skyping with their grandparents, um, learning new things about the developing world, the flora and fauna, the built environment, um, you know, uh, using uh, incredibly inventive online games and offline applications from Lego to Minecraft. I mean, there's so many different things that are available that are brilliant for a young child to engage with the reading books with their loved ones. These are the kind of, you know, base of the new food pyramid, the base of the new digital media diet that we really do want to encourage. So um, balance, uh, just as Aristotle thought that there was a mean between two vices, um, there's a real balancing act that parents and educators of young children, you know, need to be able to surmount. And I think there's lots and lots of great stuff now. It's just getting that balance right. Awesome. That was some great information. And you actually touched on a point that um, is really big here for us at the Connected Learning Alliance, which is the equity gap in education. And you actually spoke in the same speech about this issue and how um, technology could close the gap, but it could also possibly widen it. So can you give us um, some thoughts on how you think it could, how we could actually close it instead of allowing it to widen the gap? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, there is an access gap which is not, the access gap by itself is uh, less worrisome than the second gap that I will describe. But the fact that all of our schools are, are not wired and that low-income communities still are having difficulty gaining sustainable access and that we won't be able to use all the different platforms that are available to, to youngsters, particularly more vulnerable or underserved youngsters in many different communities in the United States, it's, it's a national scandal. I mean, if you take a look at it's if not a scandal, it is a national concern that needs to be addressed immediately. Um, the Obama administration, uh, the FCC, U.S. Department of Education, a lot of um, you know private companies are working on this, but not quickly enough to suit my taste. Um, so the the issue of you know the equity of uh, opportunity, the equity of access to the digital infrastructure is very very important, but. The more important gap that I worry about and that um, observers like um, Susan Newman and Henry Jenkins and lots of others have been writing about is the participation gap. That is, low-income families uh, often get less guidance and support. They're, they're, the, the parents who are engaged or the caring adults who are engaged in, in raising kids uh, are often more busy uh, with you know, work uh, concerns or other you know, life, life concerns. And, Therefore, give a little bit less guidance um, to their to their charges, and uh, in, in terms of using digital technologies. And what we're seeing is a real concern about the kind of scaffolding guidance uh, that uh, um, middle income and upper income kids are getting from the adults in their lives. So we really have to work very very carefully with parents, with teachers, with youth uh, organization leaders to um, give them the training, the deep training and professional development that they need to perform some of those family equivalent functions to give that guidance, give that scaffolding, give that support to you know, young people so that they actually know how to use the digital tools that are at their command. That is one of the biggest worries that I have and one of the real uh, opportunities for libraries, museums, and um, um, after school you know, centers that are um, perhaps a little less programmed in terms of accountability pressure and perhaps a little bit 
in better position to give these relevant skills to uh, kids who are growing up in a digital age. Awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great to mention the participation gap. You're very correct on that. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions real quick on specifically based around connected learning. Um, we often introduce connected learning to people by saying it builds on the education ba basics of reading, writing, arithmetic, which everyone knows is the three R's. And we introduce a fourth R, relevance, as in making the classroom relevant to the life outside it. Um, can you explain why you feel the need for relevance is so important for youth today? Sure, and I would add a fifth R that goes along with relevance, which is rigor. We can't just have engagement. We can't just have relevance without there being a, a structure and an importance to the relevance. Again, to my analogy of the food pyramid, there's plenty of things that are relevant to kids that you know give them um, some kind of emotional or identity support, which I don't want it to diminish. But we also want those to combine with the rigor and the depth. That's very, very important for kids to do well in today's society. So um, young people's identity is often wrapped up in, in popular culture, uh, those things that are most relevant to them as they're growing up um, uh, now are often wrapped up in, in, in children and youth having their own handle or their own meme that's connected to technology within connected learning, within connected cultures. So we need to make educational settings more relevant to the core identities and the needs that kids have, um, which is very, very different than I think in years past. Kids have global identities. Kids have um, out-of-school identities. Kids have friends from um, distant places that they never see in person. Um, the, the whole you know, notion of what's relevant and deep is shifting you know, as we speak. So, so one, I think relevance and rigor relate to um, culture and to uh, kids, you know, identities. <clears throat> and then, you know, secondly, I think that we need to figure out uh, uh, this, this, this gap, this moat of relevance that feels clear and compelling outside of school and the relevance that seems clear and compelling to the folks who are measuring the output of children's purpose in school. We don't have that connection yet um, uh, in the ways that we need to. The, um, the kinds of accountability pressures that are you know, under debate now are all about what should be relevant to compete and cooperate in a global age where children will share a future with colleagues and, and, and peers from around the world. But what's relevant to our kids is not necessarily yet what's relevant to their peers and colleagues around the globe. We've got to figure out a way to have a common understanding of what's relevant, not just in school, but outside of school. Great. Nice. I like how you connected rigor in there as well. Um, sadly enough, we're already coming to the end of our conversation with you, and I want to make sure I leave some time for you to mention uh, any projects or publications or events that you or your organization are interested in. And also, if you could let people know how they could connect with you and the CUNY Center online. Yeah, no, I'd be delighted to um, do the plugging. Thank you. <laughs> um, there's a recent report that we've completed with Vicki Rideout, who's an expert on uh, you know, media use and, uh, and society, uh, called Learning at Home. It was released uh, just a couple of months ago. Um, it's a what we do there is, for the first time, 
Uh, we talked with over 1,500 parents of children ages 2 to 10, and we suss out how they're thinking about uh, the value of educational media and the experiences that kids first have in the home. So I call attention to that. We, we, we dig into uh, some of the differences across socioeconomic and ethnocultural status. We take a look at the transition from um, print books to digital books. We zero in on the ways in which um, uh, educational media producers are either hitting the target or not hitting the target in terms of what they're trying to accomplish around, uh, you know, educating, you know, young children on key skills and, and perspectives. So that's number one. Um, upcoming in just about um, uh, two months, uh, later on this spring, uh, we'll be releasing a new report uh, with um, generous support from the Gates Foundation, which will focus on how teachers are using games in the classroom, the ways in which they're using games to personalize instruction, their perceptions of what games are good for or not good for in terms of connecting learning. Um, there are now, you know, teachers, uh, different uh, forms of participation with di digital technologies, such as games, whether it has to do with um, vary, you know, varying uh, and differentiating instruction or thinking about assessments that are formative in a new way. So um, that new report will be coming up very, very soon. In terms of, um, and it, that, that new report is a part of a larger series of games and learning um, uh, publications and, um, and work that I would like the Connected Learning Alliance to know about. We've just founded a new website on all things about games and learning. It's at gamesandlearning.org, and we'll have a whole range of new briefs and tools available that will be you know, up on that site very soon. In terms of following me personally, um, thank you very much. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, MHL underscore JGCC. Um, LinkedIn, of course, uh, at michael.levine at sesame.org or just drop me an email at that address. I am more than happy to respond to uh, inquiries and comments uh, from the Connected Learning Alliance. Awesome, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, we're so excited you participated in a chat with us here today. My pleasure, thank you very much, Lee. Thanks for joining us here at the Connected Learning Alliance. If you missed any of this conversation or want to listen to more discussions, check out our website at CLAlliance.org or subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes. See you back here for more talks with change makers and thought leaders who are building the next generation of learning.